invite you to turn to Mark chapter 7. We will see an exemplary faith from an unexpected quarter today. And I think that's a fitting title for the message. An exemplary faith from an unexpected quarter. We'll be examining Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. And this text serves as something of a contrast between the Lord's encounter that he's just had with the Pharisees. You remember his confrontation, really, that began back in chapter 3, but we were reminded of, of another scene at the beginning of chapter 7. The Pharisees are searching Jesus out, and they're confronting him. And these are those who had the law. They These were those who should have recognized Christ and they should have submitted to Christ. They should have honored Christ and worshipped Christ. These are the ones who should, especially as they saw because they had the scriptures and Jesus was fulfilling everything that the scriptures were saying that the Messiah would do. These are the ones who should have had faith. These were the ones who should have believed Jesus. And they didn't. They did not respond to Jesus in worship or honor or submission or belief or faith. What's worse is they responded in hypocrisy. They responded in superficiality. They responded in duplicity. They were hard-hearted, they were self-righteous, and where Jesus was looking for people to have faith, they responded in faithlessness. That's what we have seen in the last two sermons in chapter 7, today from an unexpected quarter, right? I mean, you would have expected the holders and the stewards uh, of, of the stewards of the law to respond in faith, you wouldn't expect faith from those outside the covenant people of Israel. You wouldn't have expected faith from the goyim, the Gentiles, the nations. And yet from this unexpected quarter where no Jew would would think or maybe even care to look, we see the kind of response that was expected from the holders of the law but was lacking kind of response that Jesus was looking for and expecting and desiring in people, the kind of response that pleases him and glorifies God and truly blesses everyone who who has it and possesses it and exhibits it. And that is the response of faith. The response of belief and faith and, and not just mere intellectual affirmation or or intellectual external assent to certain facts, but an abiding, confiding, vibrant, fervent, steadfast trust and confidence of the heart in the person and in the work of 
Jesus. That's the kind of response that, that pleases and truly blesses the soul of our Lord. Beloved, he, he truly cherishes that response in men and women 2,000 years ago and even today. The response of faith blesses the heart of the Lord. Do you want to know what this response looks like? Do, do you want to have it for yourself? I, I see Jason nodding his head. I, it's good for us to, to examine ourselves and see where can we shape up, how, how can we emulate this attitude, this response for ourselves. So I encourage you strongly, take note so that we may all emulate the example of this dear woman laid before us today. Now, the text will be divided into three parts. Verse 24, we will see the departure to Tyre. The departure to Tyre. And then the, the meat and the bulk of the text will be verses 25 to 29, the dialogue with the woman. And then the conclusion will be in verse 30, the discovery of the healing. The departure to Tyre, the dialogue with the woman, the discovery of the healing. Let's read Mark 7, 24 to 30. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but... Even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child laying on the bed, the demon having left. Well, first we... Consider the departure of Jesus to the region of Tyre. That's what Mark tells us in verse 24. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. Well, where's there? If you've been with us in Mark, the last GPS stamp or, or GPS ping that Mark has given us is the land of Gennesaret and its surrounding villages and towns and countrysides. We saw that at the conclusion of chapter 6. Gennesaret is it's, it's, uh, the, the little chunk of land immediately west of the Sea of Galilee. So this is, this is he's somewhere in the vicinity of central to, to western central Galilee. He has been in this area. He's been in the whole of Galilee for a long time. This is near the end of, of what is about a two-year, maybe even longer than two-year public 
ministry in the region of Galilee. And this whole time, he has been out in the public. He has been preaching. He has been teaching. He has been healing. He has been ministering in all sorts of capacities and all sorts of manners to the people of Galilee. And he has been at it for a while. All of these things that he's been doing hasn't been in some corner. He has been out in the public for all to see. And the people of Galilee have had an ample opportunity to respond to his preaching, to his message, to his gospel. They have heard it again and again and again. They have had ample opportunity. They have had a large window to hear the gospel, to hear Jesus, to receive the Messiah promised to the Jewish people. They've had ample opportunity to receive him on not their terms, but on his terms. Jesus wouldn't allow himself to be accepted on their terms. You remember that there were occasions that the people wanted to come and make him king by force, put him on the throne so they could kick out Rome. Jesus wouldn't have any of that. And he has been waiting for people for more people to accept him on his terms, to have this truly abiding, sincere, genuine, believing faith. Not not the kind of faith that is superficial because it wants something from him. See, Jesus knows the heart of man. He knows these people. He knows that they are collectively going to disown and reject him when the Jews in Jerusalem hand him over to the Romans. He he knows their hearts. And to further preach, to keep this window open any longer, to continue to preach to them is only going to increase their accountability to greaten and enlarge their condemnation when they finally do reject him. The more truth he is that they are given, the more light that he gives, the more accountability, the, the more they will have to answer to when they reject that light, when they turn away from that truth. And Jesus doesn't like to beat a dead horse. So the window is closing and it is time to move on. And instead of committing himself publicly and openly, instead of investing himself and giving himself to the public masses, he is devoting more and more time in private instruction to his disciples, to the twelve. And so when he can, he tries to get away to be alone with them so that he can teach them, instruct them in all all sorts of ways. And he's had a little difficulty in this regards, wouldn't you say? So the window is closing. Furthermore, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, one of Herod the Great's four sons, he's had a growing anxiety, a growing concern, a lingering concern over the popularity of Jesus. He, he thinks that Jesus is a resurrected John the Baptist who has come back to wreak vengeance on him. And the longer that Jesus stays publicly in the open in Galilee, the, the, the more likely he will become a target for Herod. Herod will eventually, would eventually try to find and corner and obtain and arrest Jesus. And we we all know what happened to John the Baptist. Well, that can't happen to Jesus. Jesus has an appointment to die on a cross at an appointed time in an appointed place down 
in Jerusalem in Judea. He is not appointed to die in some long-forgotten prison in Galilee. And so Jesus is wrapping up his public ministry. Sure, he is still healing, and he is still showing miraculous and compassionate acts of mercy left and right, but we, we don't see him engaging in teaching like he used to. He's not investing himself into the crowds, but the disciples. And yet the crowd still managed to find him wherever he goes. How many times over the last three chapters have we seen Jesus dismiss the crowds and he gets into the boat and he crosses the lake to the other side and what's there waiting for him? Another crowd. And, and if there's not a crowd already there, it doesn't matter because soon somebody recognizes him and then word spreads and then a crowd is brought to him. And Jesus will, will minister to them and he will feed them and he will show compassion to them and he will heal their sick and then eventually he will dismiss them and he will get in the boat and they will cross to the other side and what's waiting there on the other side? More crowds. It's almost as if the Son of God can't be hidden. So Jesus is wanting to give quality time to the, to the disciples. He needs more uh, time and uh, availability to shape them and to train them and to prepare them for their great commission, which he would give them after his uh, resurrection. And he can't do that when the crowds keep taking up his time. And so he has multiple reasons to close shop in Galilee. And in this text, he doesn't only leave Galilee. He leaves Israel proper. He leaves the entire nation on on what is sure a rare occurrence. And he goes to the region of Tyre. And surely there, no one's going to know who he is. There's surely not going to be a crowd waiting for him so he can spend time with his disciples. Uh, This will give Herod some time to, to cool down a little bit. Uh, This is going to give them all just a time of rest. And it will also provide a a, a cleaner, nicer transition to his final time of ministry in Judea. So he leaves the region of Galilee and Israel, and he goes to the region of Tyre. Surely, nobody there is going to know who he is, right? Well, okay, so he goes to Tyre. Now, where is Tyre? Tyre is, if you know your geography, it's modern-day Lebanon. It is north to northwest of Israel. It's from wherever Jesus is. We don't know exactly where he is in Galilee, but it's about a 40 to 50-mile trek west of where Jesus is, and it's along the Mediterranean coast in Palestine. Tyre is an established place. It's an old place, and it's a famous place. It's It is inhabited by a people called the Phoenicians. Now, the Phoenicians are the descendants of one of the Canaanite tribes. And with the exception of the king of Tyre in the time of King David and King Solomon, if you remember, uh, he he, uh, contributed wood and, and lumber to be supplied for the building of the temple. With the exception of the king of Tyre, throughout the Old Testament, Tyre has been traditionally and historically the enemies of the people of God. They introduced 
and they encouraged Baal worship in Israel. And that was something that would linger with Israel all the way to the intertestamental times. Their, their Baal idolatry was one of the chief reasons that they were sent into exile. And so the people of Tyre, the, the Phoenicians, they, they were not respected. They were not appreciated by the Jews. In fact, they were outright scorned by the Jews. In Matthew 11, when, uh, which is uh, a, a contemporary time with this part in Mark, Math, uh, Jesus has been giving his woes to the people of Capernaum and Bethsaida and, and these surrounding towns because he knows that they're going to reject him. He knows that they're not going to believe him, and he has several woes for them. And he says things like, if the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the things that you had seen, they would have repented long ago. It's fitting that we had the text that we had this morning. What's interesting is, alongside that comparison of their unbelief to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, he also says, if the people of Tyre and Sidon had seen the things you'd seen. So in the eyes of the, of the Jewish people, the people of Tyre are comparable. They're on the same playing field as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not, not a very high uh, estimation of people. And so they make that long 40 to 50-mile trek to the people of Tyre, and I suppose it's fitting that it's called Tyre because I'm sure they were tired by the time they got there. They arrive, and Jesus doesn't announce his arrival. Jesus is wanting a nice, peaceful, undisturbed, uninterrupted time with his disciples. And so Mark tells us in verse 24, he enters a house and he wanted nobody to know of it. He's not advertising. He's not announcing his presence. So surely this time he's going to get a break, right? Is he going to have a spare minute to himself and to his disciples? What does Mark say at the end of verse 24? Was Team Jesus successful in being covert and staying under the radar? He could not escape notice. How is this? If you remember back in chapter 3, 7, and 8, Mark told us that uh, as Jesus had, been, had begun his public ministry, that people, that there was a great multitude uh, who, that came to him from Galilee. And there was a great multitude that came to him from, Jeru from Jerusalem and Judea. And there was a great multitude that came from Idumea to the south and beyond the Jordan to the east. And a large multitude came to him from the vicinity of where? Tyre and Sidon. There were Tyrians, as far back as chapter 3 in Mark, there are Tyrians who had come to Jesus. They had heard about Jesus, and they went into the land of Israel, into Galilee, to find him, to hear him teach, to hear him preach, and to benefit from his healing power. And it only took one of them who had made that trek, who had seen Jesus Jesus' face. It only took one of them to, to identify, to recognize Jesus and to identify him, to blow his cover. It only took one to alert the town. Jesus is here. 
And Jesus' fame we see has clearly preceded him. He's quickly identified. And, and this sets the scene for the dialogue that we have today with, with this woman, that Jesus has with this woman. So let's consider the dialogue with the woman, verses 25 to 29. And as I just alluded to, in, in, in comedic fashion, Jesus can't get a break. It's happening all over again. And, and when, when, when I read the text, if, if you hold your Bible up really close and if, if you're really quiet, you can almost hear the sigh and the groan of the disciples as, as you read the text that Jesus could not escape notice. Business as usual. Mark doesn't say there's a crowd, but we know there is. That's typical fashion for when people identify and come to Jesus. And in Matthew's account, Matthew writes down that that this woman, for for some time, she has to cry out to Jesus. She has to shout at Jesus, which which tells us she can't just creep up and tap Jesus on the shoulder and pull him aside. There is a crowd. There there, there is at least a slight distance between jesus and where this woman can get so there's a crowd mark skips that ahead he likes to abbreviate and he he has her getting to jesus and immediately falling at his feet and pleading and here we get the reason for why she has come to jesus verse 25 mark tells us that she has a little daughter who has an unclean spirit now this little daughter we've seen this before remember the story in chapter five with jairus he says that he had a little daughter who was on the brink of death this is the same word can be translated little daughter or it could mean little girl it it was a term of endearment it doesn't require that she be a young child but we did find out in that story that she was 12 years of age so we don't see any reason why she would be any different why this little girl would be any different we can safely assume that she is a young daughter and this beloved speaks to the despicability of the demons i i I hope as you read that that this little helpless child was afflicted by these demons i I hope that this is building up uh, a resentment for those that are our spiritual enemies They aren't a respecter of persons, let alone helpless children. They will torment them just like anybody else. This text also shows that demons are no respecter of ethnic boundaries. They will afflict and possess and harm and shame Jew and Gentile alike. They're equal opportunity afflictors and tormentors. We've seen in Daniel uh, a few Old, Text, uh, Old Testament passages, and we see in the New Testament, especially in Acts and, and some of the epistles, and especially Revelation, that uh, they all affirm what this text tells us is that there is demonic activity throughout the world, not just within the boundaries of Israel. Now, I want you to notice how un-Jewish this woman is. How unJewish this woman is. We've already seen, we, we can assume that she is a Tyrian. She lives in Tyre or near Tyre, so she's obviously non Jewish. Jews would not live in Tyre if their lives depended on it. 
Matthew actually calls her a Canaanite woman, painting it pretty clearly. And then already knowing that, already assuming that, that she is a Canaanite, of Canaanite descendant, Mark uses extra ink and extra paper to emphasize her, her non-Jewishness. He tells us in verse 26, verse 26, uh, A, now the woman was a Gentile. She was a non-Jew. And not just a Gentile, not just non-Jewish. She is a Syro- Phoenician. Beloved, that's as unkosher as you can get. And that makes her request in verse 26a all the more remarkable. Don't make a (laughs) U-turn. Remain. Always go forward. The, 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 the fact, the, the, the magnitude, the emphasis on her unjewishness makes her, her recognition and, and her clinging to Jesus and her request all the more remarkable. Verse 26, Mark tells us, she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, at the onset of this encounter, she is already pole vaulted over the boundaries, over the ethnic boundaries that normal Jews and normal Gentiles even struggled to even approach. She has, she has gone over that boundary with, with leaps and ba- bounds. And it's important to know there is no hint, there is no suggestion that she was groomed towards Judaism. She was not instructed in Judaism The New Testament has a word for these Gentiles, for people of Gentile, non-Jewish descent who, despite their pagan roots, desired to honor and to worship the one true God and and, and who tried on some level, as much as they were able, to co-abide or or to even fellowship with the Jews. There's a word that the New Testament, there's a term the New Testament uses to describe those kinds of people, and they're called God-fearers. Cornelius the centurion in Acts 9 or 10 is, to, is identified as a God-fearer. Five to, four or five other times in the book of Acts, we're told that there were God-fearing men. I believe the, the women in, in Philippi were God-fearing women. Those were Gentiles groomed or, or, or in the process of uh, proselytization, of being trained and instructed of how to be... A, on some level, a Jewish convert. But Mark doesn't call her that. So, beloved, she pagan. She way pagan. Like Abraham the patriarch, she was groomed for paganism. She grew up pagan, and there's no reason to think she's anything less than a fully committed pagan until the moment God encounters her. And there's no doubt in my mind that she has tried every single approach to appease her pagan gods. And up to this point, they have shown themselves to be completely unhelpful or unable or unwilling or powerless. But she's heard of Jesus. She's heard of Jesus and she's heard that no demon, no unclean spirit can, can hope to stand toe-to-toe with this man. This man's different. 
So she's heard of Jesus, and she hears now that he's in town. And immediately, Mark tells us, she immediately sought him out. She immediately, whatever she was doing, drops it at, the, at a hat and searches for Jesus and finds him and falls at his feet and pleads. Mark tells us that she's pleading again and again and again. It's, it's in the imperfect, it, it, repeated pleading, asking Inquiring over and over and over again. I, I hope you can see, I hope some of you can sympathize, can relate to this strong parental, uh, uh, incessant, desperate drive that comes out of being a parent. Of, uh, that, that is just natural when it comes to caring for the well-being of your child. Can, can you see this strong maternal drive pleading for the welfare of her child? Now, Matthew details this, this prolonged pleading. He tells us in Matthew 15.23 that, that after she began pleading with him, that the disciples had to come to Jesus, and they had to, and this is in the imperfect as well, they had to plead with him to send her away because she keeps shouting at them. She, she's become something of a nuisance. That's how, that's how strong and how incessant and how desperate her, her drive is. And it's, it's something of a comical scene. She's pleading with Jesus, and everyone's pleading with Jesus for different things. She's pleading with Jesus to heal her daughter. They're pleading with Jesus to send her away. That's what Matthew tells us. Mark likewise prolongs this pleading by, by not only putting her imploring or, or, or asking him in the imperfect, but he, he, Mark puts him responding to her in the imperfect. And ju- just to give you an idea of what this looks like, you've seen in cartoons and movies the, 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 the comical, petty little bickering where one side goes, yes, you were, no, you weren't, yes, you were, no, you weren't. That, that is a great idea of what an imperfect back and forth looks like. She is incessant in her pleading. He is incessant in his response to her. Well, what, what does he say? What, what is his response? Let's, let's consider this. Let's look at the content of his response, verse 27. What does he say? He was saying to her again and again, let the children be satisfied first. Let the children be satisfied first. Why? Just as a side note, this is the same word that we saw back in chapter 6. Remember, Jesus took the five loaves and he he multiplied it. And it says that everybody ate and they were all satisfied. The the idea is of being gorged, of, of grazing to the full, of being plumped up, you could say. Jesus says, let the children be satisfied first. Let the children have their fill first. Why? Jesus says, because it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes. You just heard the most compassionate man ever to grace the face of God's green earth call a woman a dog. 
You, ju- you did just hear that. Well, what does this response mean? Who are the children? What is their bread? And, and why does he call her a dog? Those of you who have read this text before, have you wrestled with this? Have you ever, like, what do you make of, what does that mean? Well, Matthew's account helps us, preceding this part in the conversation in Matthew. Matthew precedes, uh, and, uh, precedes with a statement that Mark omits. Jesus says in Matthew's account, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we have to mark that because it help, it, it's an interpretive help. It's an interpretive key to understanding what he means here in Mark. The children in Mark 7.27 are the house, it, uh, it, it, they are the house of Israel. They are the Jews. And if the children are the Jews, then what is the children's bread? Jesus is the bread of heaven that has, that has that comes down and that has been given to and that has been entrusted, that has been promised and provided for the Jews. Jesus is the bread. His person, his work, his ministry, all the blessings that come with his arrival, all of that is the bread that has been rightfully, that, that is now being rightfully offered to the Jews. Why is it right for it to be offered to them first? Because it was promised to them first in the scriptures. And I think his words here for the disciples as much as for this woman, because I'm sure, I'm sure there, maybe everyone was wondering if, if, if now that Jesus has wrapped things up in Galilee, he spent two years there. Now that he is is departed from Galilee, is is he going to the Gentiles now? Is he going to expand his ministry? Is he going to bring Gentiles into the kingdom? Is he going to call uh, Gentile disciples? I mean, doesn't doesn't Isaiah 61, 4, which is the conclusion to uh, what we called earlier the Messianic Manifesto, that's that's the passage that Jesus quoted from when he began his public ministry in the uh, Nazarene synagogue back in Luke chapter 4 where he clearly identifies himself as the anointed Messiah. Doesn't that passage end with the coastlands waiting expectantly for God's law? And look, now Jesus is in the coastlands. Doesn't Isaiah and repeatedly say that the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles? Doesn't the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 12 say that, the, that through Abraham would come a, a blessing for all the families of the earth? It, is it at this time that the bread is now going to be given to the whole world? I'm sure that was what could have been going through their mind. But Jesus says, no, not yet. Jesus says the bread must be given in full to the children first. It must be given to the children first before it can be offered to the dogs. And the children have not yet had their fill. They have not yet been gorged on this bread. 
because the bread of life has yet to go to Jerusalem and to die on a cross so that the children's sins and, mind you, the dog's sins as well can be forgiven. That's the fully baked bread when it will be ready to be given. But Jesus is the bread and it is, he says, it is not right. It is not good. It is not appropriate in God's divine schedule that it be offered to anybody else other than the people to whom it was first promised. Promised to the Jews first. He will be given, he will be offered to the Jews first. And after that, after that, the bread will be given to the dogs. And I'm sure, I am positive that the woman didn't, that this, this dear, precious woman did not miss the fact that Jesus said, let it be given to the children first. Jesus didn't say, I only am going to give myself, I'm, the bread is only for the children. He says, let the children have their fill first. And when you say first, you're implying, you're expecting something to follow. He doesn't say that he won't feed the dogs. Just merely let the children have their bread first. And th- th- this, this analogy, this picture, comes from a, a typical uh, Eastern family uh, where the food has been prepared, the family has been, uh, the family is assembling, the children have been called out from playing and doing whatever they're doing, and they are now assembled at the table and who are you going to give the food to first? Now, you, we have to divorce ourselves from, from uh, an, an American culture because there are many in our culture who equate animals and their pets with their children. And you, you know that I have three precious dogs. Many of you who have been in my house, you have seen me talk to them like this, and you know that I love my little puppies. You know that I do. But at the end of the day, if the Lord should should give us a child, if we bring a child into our house, it would be inappropriate for me to prioritize and to give first pickings to an animal over someone who has been made in the image of God, someone who bears God's likeness. And so it would have been expected for the family, for the people, for the children to have their first fill. Now, it wasn't exactly common for the Jews to have dogs, but remember, Jesus isn't in Israel. Perhaps this, it was more customary for the people of Tyre and for, Can- for the Canaanites to have dogs. Where we have seen this word come up in the scripture, it's usually uh, describing something of a scavenger, something of an own- ownerless animal uh, who's usually diseased and who's usually dangerous. It, typically the way dogs are, are, are described in the Bible, they're the kind of creatures that would not be appropriate, it would not be expected not only for them to eat before the children, for the, but for them to even be under the table or in the house. And yet G, we see Jesus uh, doesn't jump out in the English, but in, in the Greek he uses a, a diminutive form in the same way that Mark has described not once but twice a little daughter, a little girl. Here he calls them little dogs. So they're, they're inherent in the way this word is written. There, there's this sense of, of littleness or affectionate. And, and the context would tell us that there's no scandal. There's no offense in these 
dogs being at the table, let alone at the feet of the children. So we can assume they are welcome there, and after the children have eaten, they will be gladly fed by the owner. There, there is a rightness, there is an appropriateness to the children being fed first, and then the scraps and the leftovers being given to the little dogs. Now look how this woman responds. How does she respond? Is she, is she offended at Jesus? Does she say, I don't lo- how dare you call me a dog? That's not very loving. People are not, you're not going to have any kind of a following around here if you go around calling us dogs. It's not, it's not how you get Yelp, good Yelp reviews or followers on Twitter. No, she doesn't get offended. She doesn't get angry. We don't see her get confronted, uh, confrontative or argumentative. She rather appeals to Jesus. And this is fantastic. She appeals to Jesus. She accepts being called a dog. She accepts what Jesus says. She affirms what Jesus says. And using his own analogy, using his own words, he appeals to his, she appeals to his mercy using his own analogy. I love this. And I, I, I wish uh, we, I could uh, have this like labeled on, on a, uh, or I, I wish I could have like a precious moments card with this verse on it or, 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 you know, write it out and tape it up on my fridge. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the children's crumbs under the table. That's a great verse to have up on your fridge. Yes, Lord, but even the dog under the table feed on the children's crumbs. That's a great response. She says, yes, Lord. I mean, just stop right there. Whenever Jesus speaks to you, usually through his word, right? When Jesus speaks to you, when you hear the Lord speak, yes, Lord, is always a good thing to say. It is always a good thing to say. She affirms the children's right to eat first. The bread was promised to them. It's right that it be given to them. She's not trying to take anything away from them. She's not trying to, to, uh, to hinder them. She's not covetous of, of their position, of their prominence, of their privilege. She's not, trying, she's not arguing to be seen as their equal or to be on equal footing with them. She's merely asking that in the abundance in the ample abundance, in, in, in the bountiful abundance of power and mercy that God has provided to his people in Israel through Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life, is there, she's asking, is in the abundance of that, in the abundance of that power, is there even a crumb that might fall through the table of Israel? Is there a crumb of mercy that might fall down to this little dog under your table? And the way she asks it, she's, she's, she's not being pessimistic. She's anticipating. She's expecting, yes, I know how merciful you are. I know how powerful you are. I'm not trying to take you away from your ministry, from your objective. But surely there is something you can do. There's some mercy you can show me. Surely there is. She's not asking for the loaf. She's just asking for a crumb. And since even... To use Jesus' own analogy, 
since even the dogs, the little dogs, the little pet dogs in the family get crumbs that fall off the table, surely there's one that you know he could just flick off for her. And, and whatever that crumb is, whatever he does, any extent of mercy he might show to her, that's enough. And I wonder, I, I truly wonder, had she heard about the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 men? Had she heard that with five wafers or loaves that he fed 25,000 people? And you remember what was left over? What was left over? Empty baskets? How many baskets? And were they were there just like little bits of stuff in each basket? They were what? They were full. Twelve full baskets of crumbs left over from five loaves. I wonder if she, if she had heard of that. I wonder if that had, it, when, when, she, when Jesus says bread, I wonder if that triggered something in her mind and knew his ability to provide supernatural, abundant amounts of blessing with practically nothing. I don't know if she knew that or not. Maybe she did. You know how word got out about Jesus. You see her faith? Because of that faith, which is her faith is proven by her answer to him. She she doesn't take this as a rejection. She anticipates, she expects a merciful response from him. Because of that faith, Jesus rewards her with the instantaneous healing of her daughter. And just as a side note, this is the only occasion in Mark where Jesus heals supernaturally from a distance. Up until now, we've, all, we've seen him touch people. We've seen him get within the vicinity and speak, speak healing. This is the only occasion in Mark where he does it over distance. And in Matthew, he praises her. He says, oh, woman, great is your faith. In verse 30, we see the, dis- well, the woman sees the discovery of the healing. Verse 30. Going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having Left. Now, Mark concludes this story with the woman acting out her great faith yet again. She doesn't insist that Jesus come to her house. Remember, remember, we saw Jairus pleading with Jesus, you need to come to my house. You need to see my daughter. You need to lay your hand on her and touch her. There needs to be physical contact. Remember the woman with the, with the 12-year hemorrhage, she said, if I just touch him, I will be healed. Now, you and I know that God can speak and things happen. But up until now, we've seen this fixation that people think Jesus needs to be there. There needs to be a touch. There is, he is powerful, but there's a limit to his power. He needs to be there. And she doesn't insist that Jesus come to her house. She doesn't plead for him to lay his hands on her daughter. And she, there is no hint or suggestion that she doubts his words. And I wonder if there was a hint of skepticism in her, 
don't you think maybe she would have thought, if there was even a trace of doubt, if there was anything but an abiding, lasting, vibrant, fervent, steadfast faith in this woman, don't you think that maybe the thought might have crossed her mind that maybe he's just lying to me? Maybe he just doesn't want to take the time to come out to my house. I am, I am a dirty Gentile after all. And if I, if, if I take him at his word and if I go to my house, am I really going to find her healed? And if I, go, if I come back to where Jesus is, is he still going to be here or is he going to use this as, a, as an opportunity to move on? There is not a hint of her doubting the word of the Lord. She believes him at his word. He says it's done, so she leaves to go home. And if Jesus is lying, her, her, her chance to get him over there is, is gone. She never, that thought never crosses her mind. She believes him and his words are enough for her. So she goes home. We don't know how far away she lived. I don't know if that was a half mile, full mile. Did she live in another city? And I wonder how she paced herself. Did she start off with a nice brisk but firm stride and the more anxious she got to see her daughter did she did she gradually build into a sprint or is she sprinting the whole way what does she find when she gets there what does she find what jesus said was true she found she discovered the child lying on the bed the demon having left why is she lying on the why is it why is her daughter lying on the bed if you remember the agony if you remember the the misery that legion put through the demoniac you remember that the demons the unclean spirits put their captives through a living hell we we don't know the extent of of this child's suffering. We don't know how long she was possessed. We, we know absolutely nothing about her suffering other than the fact that now it is over. What a blessing. What a blessing this must have been for her after, after all the futility that she had been subjected to and that she had suffered at the hands of her paganism. Her faith and her belief in Jesus was rewarded with an answer and the fulfillment of her prayer. Beloved, isn't it a blessing to see the fruition of your faith? To see it mature and to grow and to bear its fruit and demonstrate that you're trusting in the Lord Jesus isn't just some fanciful, wishful thinking, but is in fact a vibrant reality. Now, I need to close, but there's three principles that I want to draw out of this. Three lessons. Two we see from her and a third from Christ. One is, beloved, we need to have a faithful response to suffering in our trials. We need to have a faithful understanding, a faithful viewing of our suffering and our trials. 
And no matter how harsh, no matter how great, no matter how terrible, no matter how sufferable your suffering is, being at the feet of Jesus is always the best place to be. It is better to be a lowly, suffering, pleading, crying dog at the feet of Jesus than to be at the top of your game anywhere else at the, at the whimsical, fickle, and temporary and fleeting mercy of the world of men. Being at the feet of Jesus, no matter your suffering, is always a good place to be. First Peter 3.17 tells us that God may even will for us to suffer for doing what is right. And first, he would say later, in two chapters later, in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your cares upon him, for he cares for you. R.C. Sproul says that is the microcosm of the Christian faith. That, that, is, that is what it means to be a Christian in a, in a nutshell. Humble yourselves. Trust that God will take care of you. Cast your anxieties on him. So have a faithful response to your suffering. Have a faithful response in prayer. Did you see the the humility of this woman? Did you see the persistence of this woman? Did you see the submissiveness? Did Did you see her trust? What exemplary qualities to have to have in our own prayer. Did you see that she was an intermediary? Did you see that she's not even praying for herself? She's praying for another who doesn't have the means to pray for herself. And I wanted to just take this opportunity to remind you that twice a month, the men gather for prayer at the church. What a, what a rich opportunity to join in prayer, not only for your own concerns, but to, but to be intermediaries, to pray on the behalf of your brothers and sisters on the Lord. For the women, we just conclu- the church just concluded the women's study, but y'all can network, y'all can connect with each other. Be praying for one another. So have a have a more faithful view of your suffering. Have a more faithful understanding and exercise in your prayer life. The third thing I'd like to leave you with today is a, a lesson that we learn from Jesus Christ himself, and that's to be focused yet flexible in your relationships. Remember, he was brought up a Jew. And I'm, I have no doubt in my mind that his, perhaps in his own family, but certainly in the Jews, uh, in his town and in the culture that he was brought up he was brought up being told about those dirty dirty tyrians those nasty phoenicians those pig-eating gentiles how unclean they are you you remember what gentiles did when they went into what jews did when they would go into a gentile land and come back what would they do take the dust off their feet do we do we see jesus doing that when he engages and interacts with this woman so be flexible in your encounters with, with people who may not think like you, with people who may not look and sound like you. Good things to learn from our text today? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful word. Thank you for your compassion to us. We, 
so undeserving of your grace. Help us to be lowly like this woman. Help us to be submissive to you. Help us to receive whatever it is that you say to us. Help us to receive whatever it is you give to us. And and help us to trust that however you respond to our pleas, help us to trust in your goodness and to believe that you are the one who always does what is right. Help us to entrust ourselves to you knowing that you always do what is right. Thank you again for this text, for the encouragement that it is to us and a reminder of just how merciful and good you are. Amen.